Good evening. First of all, thank you, Tessa and Frida, for the invitation. I'm uh, very honored to be in Stockholm. It's actually my first time, so I really made use of the opportunity to see your beautiful Moderna Museet and the wonderful collection and uh, equally astonishing city. So I hope I can pay you back with a nice lecture. What I will do is speak about the artist's studio. It's a subject which is of my research interests already for a long time. And what I'll do tonight is start with an introduction which you can partly find in the book that uh, Frida already mentioned. But then I will go on with two examples. Frankly, the book is being made. You can read it. I'm not going to repeat which is in there. But what I'd like to do is show two articles, supposedly, if I make a new version or a like Jaws 2, of the fall of the studio 2, which kind of articles might uh, end up in that book. And one of it is a piece that I want to write, another piece is which I've just recently written, and I'll mix them up in a talk about the idea of fabrication and the fact that a lot of artworks in the last five decades have been produced after the specifications of an artist. And the quote which I'm using as the title, you specify it, we fabricate it, it was the slogan of a, of a firm, a steel firm in Newark, New Jersey, in New York, that Tony Smith, the American sculptor, architect, he saw it when he was driving back into New York and he was fascinated by the slogan. And so he picked up the phone in 1962 and he just ordered the steel cube die, 70 feet by 70 feet, over the phone. And this has become a legendary work within, let's say, the art production of the last five decades. As uh, many of you might know, the artist studio is in dire standing, or so we are made believe by many uh, critics and writers and even artists. We are so-called in a period behind the studio, post the studio. The studio has fallen and a lot of practices is not being used anymore. After that, the artists in the 1960s critically questioned the modes of production, distribution and uh, commodification of artworks, the studio as the prime site of artistic production seems to have been uh, abolished. It became a prime target for critique and uh, was declared to have fallen and finally lost both its conventional prominence and mythical stature, its putative station as Imagination's Chamber, which is a famous book that presents a history of artist studios of modern art. To many artists, this space not only accommodated, but above all represented a type of artistic practice that was outdated kind of uh, singular practice in a studio where you have your inspiration, you paint or you sculpt, and then you send your artworks out into the world. Artists wanted to produce in a completely different uh, way, and so they wished to supersede or to get out of that space that symbolized a traditional way of art production. And this is a, a very famous book by Alexander Lieberman that depicts artists like uh, Giacometti, but also Matisse, uh, Bonnard, and all the famous modern artists in their studio here, Giacometti in a very putative position, thinking like the Rodin, the thinker. So you get a very romantic uh, imagery that is being communicated about what artists do in their studio. Yet this uh, image and this notion is fundamentally overthrown by a series of artists that move from minimalism to conceptual art, land art, and so on, with the prime example being uh, Robert Smithson, who writes in 1968, deliverance from the confines of the studio frees the artist to a degree from the snares of craft and the bondage of creativity. 
So both craft, the skills that an artist traditionally represents and the idea that they are creative, that they make something special within their studio, as soon as they leave that space, they might be able to do something else. So artists try and find new modes and strategies of making, distributing, presenting or experiencing art. And as they do so, the traditional mediums of painting and sculpture. This enigmatic steel cube of uh, Tony Smith of 1962, and then another version made in 1968, is a prime example of this delegation of labor. No longer making something yourself, no longer representing this moment of creativity. The only moment of creativity seems to be the idea that pops up in the head of the artist. He takes up the phone and calls up a firm, just orders like you order a pizza or something else. You order a work of art. And Richard Serra recounted in 1985 when he started to produce large-scale steel sculptures in the late 1960s, he was forced to move outside of the private studio. And I quote, the studio has been replaced by urbanism and industry. Steel mills, shipyards and fabrication plants have become my on-the-road extended studios. And I'm showing two images out of a book by uh, Grégoire Müller, The New Avant-Garde, issues for the art of the 70s with a very famous photograph discussed by Rosalind Krauss where Sarah throws leather in the corner of a room and then the other I particularly like the image on the right where you have an element which is industrially produced but humanly manipulated so this is very precarious situation in which an artist decides to use uh, industrial means of production but nevertheless to install it is obliged to find a series of men and to engage a series of men. Actually, one person died once while installing a piece of Richard Serra. This is very obscure but famous or debated phase within the career of Richard Serra. Now, other artists try to move out of the studio, not towards fabrication or industrial sites, but into the landscape to circumvent the commodification of the artwork. And in 1971, very famously, an essay which is being used as a manifesto for the post-studio uh, tradition is uh, Daniel Buren, who in 1971, in uh, Fonction de l'Atelier, writes that his practice no longer requires a studio, even more, he abolishes. L'abolition de l'Atelier is the, the last three words, is that his aim to produce a kind of work which is completely different from the work that was being made before, he has to extinguish, abolish, delete somehow this traditional space of uh, production. In most recent decades, this discourse and this rhetoric has been pumped up ever more by a generation of artists who are being said, of course, bluntly, to spend more time in airplanes than in their actual studio, represented by this nice work by Jesse J. van der Heijden. But the fact that work is no longer produced on a single spot, but within a broad network of actors, political, social, economical, and that works are being produced or come into being on myriad sites via both physical and virtual basis, and through the collaboration of different people with varied skills and backgrounds. Few artists so-called stay in one place. I'm repeating a series of the arguments which have been put forward to proclaim the so-called post-studio era. And to quote another very famous uh, contemporary artist, Philippe Perrineau, the French artist, a celebrated exponent of the nomadic uh, existence as an artist, relational activity and collaborative practice, that flourished in the 1990s, remarked in 2003, I don't need one studio, but I do need a lot of studios. My ideal place, so he continues, 
would be one place made of many different places, made of different qualities and useful in different time frames. So you have a whole, say, legacy of artists that since the 1960s proclaimed the destruction or the redefinition of that space to a degree that it supposedly no longer exists, that we are in an area behind the studio. And one of the things that struck me when we produced this book, we came to the conclusion that obviously the last four decades are marked by a critical questioning of the various sides of artistic production, the gallery, uh, the museums, institutional critique has been very powerful in questioning those specific sides of the market, the gallery, the studio, the museum, the house of the uh, collector and so on. But strangely enough, there is only one space within that network of spaces where art is being made, produced, distributed, represented, uh, written about, and so on. There's only one space that we uh, denominate with the prefix post, which is the studio. Very rarely, and if people do so, it's mostly quite uh, shallow, very rarely they speak about a post-museum uh, era or a post-gallery era. So, but the studio apparently seems to be the one and only space within the network of spaces that somehow artists feel very determined to abolish, symbolically at least. Because if you speak to artists or if you start to study the work of artists, and I think the show by Tessa also shows it, this space has never been truly abolished. It has shifted identity, has taken up new guises, has evolved into a very complex, as the museum has done, a monster, but a beautiful monster. Pontus Hulten, I, I uh, had to think about this great uh, Swedish curator today when I visited Kulturhuset. He once wrote about the Centre Pompidou, this monster-like museum, that it's a monster, but a beautiful monster. You could say that the, the studio nowadays has also transformed, if you combine, let's say, the different existences that are uh, you can collect if you start to look at the various modes of production and the way artists produce work nowadays, it's become a very complex thing, a very complex space that not necessarily uh, collides with a specific space somewhere in a city or in a town, but is shifting and moving about. So this whole notion of um, speaking about a post-studio age, that it's over with the studio, is somehow too absolute. And the term, I, and we made a comparison with the term institutional critique, there's nobody who really wants to authorize the term post-studio either. So if uh, when John Baldessari uh, named his studio at CalArts in LA his post-studio class, he said, I probably got it from Carl Andre. And then when Carl Andre was asked about whether he came up with the term, he said, I guess I did, but it's probably not true. So nobody really wants to claim that title, the same as Andrea Fraser, some of you might have read a wonderful piece in art form a few years ago about the institution uh, of institutional critique, I think that was the title, in which she also said, I think I was the one who invented the term, but I'm not sure. The same goes for this post-studio term, that it's being used and has become part of our, let's say, natural vocabulary to speak about contemporary art practice today. Well, if you truly think about the term, why should there be a necessity to think of something which is over? 
that we have done away with. I think if you truly look at, at contemporary practices, you can't possibly say so unless you only consider one specific type of artistic practice as exemplary for contemporary art production, which is, of course, way too exclusive. There are a lot of artists that work in studios today, although very loosely and very freely. And combined with this, I think the studio remains a place of... Uh, high intention and high curiosity and I'm just using this uh, issue of uh, the, the fashionable journal wallpaper in which a French uh, photographer Gautier de Blonde uh, has traveled all over the world to the inner sanctum of the artist, that's what he called us. And I normally, when I show this to, to my students, I do a short quiz and I ask which studio you can recognize. It's actually not so difficult to do so. But especially the one in the middle here is the most fraud one because obviously Stara has no like true studio where he would produce a sculpture like this. But nevertheless, you immediately know that this is Richard Serra, Anish Kapoor, uh, Ron Muick, uh, Richard Hamilton on the lower left corner, and the other ones I forgot. But nevertheless, you have this strange combination in which you have a side of production, art is still being produced in very different ways, but also in studios. And nevertheless, this side of creation where things are being made uh, being artworks, these very peculiar objects we relate to, as in this uh, institution. There is a major fascination for that space and how it actually looks like, how it functions, who is, who is there besides the artist, and so on. If you combine these things together, there, and there are a lot of shows actually being made in the last four or five years. There was one in Dublin, in uh, Centre Pompidou, in Berlin, with the theme of the studio. So somehow there is a, a broad interest in that space of production or at least to try and grasp the conditions, the qualities in which art is being produced. Like what comes before the object we encounter when we are in an exhibition space. There's a mystery about what happens before. And that mystery somehow is rarely visible but nevertheless quite important to understand often uh, the artwork that we're dealing with. So this was the, the book we made, The Fall of the Studio, Artists at Work, specifically uh, not trying to fall into the trap that we consciously try to avoid. So we spoke about artists at work, and it's a series of articles that discuss uh, Nauman, Rothko, Eliasson, Daniel Buren, Robert Morris, and so on. Seven ar ar articles in, in total. What I'd like to do, however, is to return to, and this is the... This is where the new part of my lecture starts, and well, I'm going to and try and improvise for a great deal. Is I'd, I'd like to return to the specific moment that is initiated by a conceptual art. If an artwork can exist as a mere idea, as a thing that is being sent out into the world as a sole description, then the material form is being uh, declared open, but also the person who has the idea no longer needs a workspace. You can have an idea when you're having breakfast, you can have it when you're having a shower, whatever. So the, the idea of having a studio is being profoundly questioned with conceptual art. And I show uh, Lawrence Wiener because his uh, statement of intent is of course very famous. Uh, the artwork may be produced, each being equal and consistent with the intent of the artist. This decision as to condition rests with the receiver upon the occasion of receivership. This work which, uh, if you go to Diet Beacon in New York, you will find in the entrance uh, hall. So the idea that the work needs to be made is declared open and not a necessity. 
which means also that the space uh, of uh, creation, the studio, is equally declared uh, open. And this is another famous piece that I, I found uh, disturbingly interesting, where also the time, the duration, and the materiality, the actual production, is an open question and an invitation, not necessarily a, a gift somehow, that you can take up upon. Anyone can make this piece, as long as you can play these two notes, and then you can decide yourself how long you want to play them. Not only the place of uh, making and is being questioned, but also the idea of production, of making something in itself, is fundamentally questioned by someone like Douglas Hubler, who writes, the world is full of objects more or less interesting, I do not wish to add any more. So the necessity to make something, to add something to the world, which is already full of stuff, stuff which is often highly designed, and I'll come back to that later, what has art to add somehow? So we, we arrive at a moment, and I call it um, like a, a degree zero somehow, within art production, in which making in general is profoundly at stake. Or at least, and I think that every artist who is working nowadays has to continuously somehow uh, relate to that moment. Why produce? Why make something? And what does the thing or whatever, how material it actually is, what's the necessity and how does it differ? How does it, uh, how is it, how different is it from those other things we uh, encounter uh, today? So today we, there is not only like profound doubt about the procedures, the conditions and the qualities for the making of the work, because if you can only have an idea, you do no longer need any skills. You, there are no quality, how do you say this? Um, we can no longer say why it is a good artwork. It's not because it's well made, because you have very filthy artworks, which are really good artworks. So the notion of skill and producing something well is also uh, lost. And the making itself as a possibility, as an urge, as a necessity, is also fundamentally up for grabs. And I think it's still up uh, today. And that's what I'd like to uh, move on to, because artists in the 1960s, they've spoken about uh, uh, Richard Serra, Tony Smith and others, but also someone like Sol Lewitt, uh, which I will speak about in a minute. They moved to other modes of production, industrial and others, because it allowed them to fundamentally question notions of authorship, the commodity status, the exclusivity, the uniqueness, and so on, of uh, the artwork. And the modes of industrial production somehow presented a series of conditions and qualities that allowed them to do so. Nowadays, however, artists are, or we, uh, uh, as a public, are confronted with a completely different mode and atmosphere of production in which almost any single object which you can buy going from your furniture to your shoes, you can add your own artwork. This is Puma and Nike, where you have Nike ID, in which... I have to go back, sorry. I've lost my uh, argument a little bit. Anyway, I'll just try and I think nowadays the modes of industrial production are fundamentally changed in which we do not only consume mass-produced products, but we are made to believe by that very industry that produces those mass-produced objects that we can customize them and add our own artwork. And this means that there is a fundamentally changed atmosphere in the industry to relate to, while in the 1960s the industry back then had some kind of promise, the idea or the question arises nowadays, how do you relate to the industry which is being produced now? Because this thing that Smith did, you send your specifications and we fabricate it, 
is something which is common and very uh, normal nowadays. You send your specifications to a, a furniture maker and he makes it and you get it on your doorstep. Instead of the telephone, we use internet. And one of the uh, things that I found uh, this morning is the firm Maikia. Anybody knows it? It's a Dutch firm of uh, graphic designers who were uh, bored by the blonde design of Ikea and they decided that they would just simply use the Billy uh, cupboard and a few others of the standard design furniture and you can add your own artwork. So you go to that website and you add your artwork. The thing is that with all these firms like Nike ID or the Mongolian shoe barbecue of Puma is that you are made believe that you are a unique customer, that you have a unique authorship over the own, your own product. Which means that, and this uh, don't we all just love and hate IKEA at the same time, the thing is there is an, uh, a situation now in the production of commodities in which authorship is being handed over as a promise to the consumer and the uniqueness of the object is something which is being promised to us as everyday consumers. And this means, and it's an article by uh, Joshua McElhenney, it's called Ready-Made Resistance, that the simple appropriation of the current means of industrial production are somehow no longer available to artists. We have to move on to other modes of production. And he writes, the message is that the individual can no longer be a producer of things except in highly circumscribed situations. And so artists must continually attempt to reclaim the territory of production or invent new relationships to it. So the question is up, what is the critical role of an artwork in an era in which the standardization of industrial products has been like, exchanged for the illusion of unlimited consumer choice? And McElhenney writes that the, the Duchampian strategy of appropriating an object and just showing it as it is is no longer a valuable option. And he calls it a change in authorship by fiat. So he writes, what are other tactics or procedures now that Western society promotes the idea of consumer choice itself as a, a kind of de facto authorship? What I'm trying to get at is that this famous sentence of Smith, you specify it, we fabricate it, you take it up and you get an artwork that nowadays somehow this delegation of labor through sending specifications is something critical or something to be critically questioned. Well, you can go to the MyKia site to go. What I'll do now in the last remaining 10 minutes is show two examples that I think uh, relate to this problem in a very different uh, fashion. And the first one is the free... Anyone heard about this project? Free Salute at the Van Abbe Museum in Eindhoven in the Netherlands. And this is the piece that I want to write, because I'd like to explain to you why I was... I'm, I'm not sure if I'll manage, but I was uh, profoundly scandalized by this work. So, uh, Van Habe uh, owns this work, the Untitled Wall Structure of 1972, by Sol Lewitt, which was also produced by Lewitt just uh, telephoning or sending the specifications for this wall structure to a firm, I think, in the Netherlands, in Bergeijk, where Lewitt had a lot of his uh, uh, structures uh, made. But um, the Friesel Lewitt project is a project by the collective uh, Superflex, the Danish collective, which I think you all uh, know. What they wanted to do is to free this work out of the uh, museum that acts or that relates to, and they write the artworks as some kind of criminals within uh, a prison, which is the museum, and they wanted to use somehow the possibility which is within the specifications, the fact that this work 
if you think about it, indeed, it's a series of specifications, so we could all possibly make it, that uh, they wanted to do something with that idea. So far, I can follow. I think it's a brilliant idea in times of questioning of copyright and authorship. How can you relate to a work that was once being made by a very simple phone call? What they actually did is they set up a workshop, literally, within the museum space itself, and visitors, and now is the the point when it becomes, I think, highly problematic. Visitors could all fill in a form and say, I'd like to receive, if I get the chance, a soluid wall structure by Superflex. And then Superflex, out of this big box with more than five or 700 of forms, picked out 20 or something lucky ones. They received a work by Soluid. And now I'm going to show what happens. This is what is being posted on the website. I think the uh, shocked me the most was this form in which the, I don't know if there is an English word for it, but you know, tombola, you know what it is? Voila. That's what it actually does. And it's the idea, you, you are made believe to receive an artwork, which is not necessarily one. You use the structure to organize this gift by means of an event, which is profoundly a consumerist structure, is that you have commodities, you have some, in this case, you don't even invest money, but you, you get the promise continuously of receiving something which you do not know. You might not even ask for it, but nevertheless, your people massively, of course, wanted to have this piece um, and filled in the form. But what I also thought was incredibly problematic is the literality of the staging of the side of production. I think one of the main aspects of the Lewitt gesture was to distance from, nevertheless, use, but not being involved. And the fact that you disconnect, you this junk, uh, this, uh, you create this disjunction between the actual object, the artist, and the place of production, that's a productive site, because the work primarily exists as a description. By staging the work and staging it towards the visitor, and that's the part where I still not really grasp what I find problematic, but it's the offer which is embedded in the literal staging of a studio that when as every single viewer to the Van Abbe Museum, obviously, I think all of us would do, if you go, you think you'll be the lucky one. You will get the artwork. And I think it's the literality of staging a place of production which is not industrial, but a manual workplace. People were manually producing these works for two months in a row. It's returning to a mode of production which is somehow still present today, but nevertheless also outdated. I think if they really took the project serious, they might have come up with something which is not as literal as this one. But nevertheless, it's staging the side of production. People loved it, that you entered the Van Abbe and you could hear this like massive noise, and suddenly the museum came live again. And I think bringing in this logic is fundamentally going against the grain of the logic of someone like Lewitt and his own generation. Of uh, They were not aiming at living up the museum, but trying to define new modes and not being regressive. I think this is a fundamentally regressive project while being presented as very progressive. And then you get these pictures, which you can all find at the website, where people really do not know what to do with Soluid. So they rent a van and then they do not manage to get it uh, back home, obviously. But I think these pictures are incredibly revealing and, uh, well, shocking.
and not. In the Netherlands, it's all fun anyway, so this is fun, obviously. But I guess um, the fun of it needs to be seriously questioned. And then to move on, and this is my uh, last example, I do not want to make this into a dichotomy. This is a, the good cop and the bad cop, the good artwork and the bad artwork. But nevertheless, this is a piece I've just written about a Belgian artist uh, in his mid-30s, where I tried to um, understand a series of means and modes of production. And I'll only speak about this, uh, this piece. This is uh, If the Air Was Transparent. It's a sculpture made out of wooden planks, seamlessly uh, put together. And if you confront it in the exhibition space, you have no idea what it is. It looks like a Klingelhaller or a, like an 80s Mucha uh, uh, sculpture or something. That's what immediately would come to mind. But then when I started to speak with the artist, and he's not secretive about it at all, but the thing is you don't see it when you enter. And this is a, a very important point. He's not secretive about it, but he does not communicate it. But you get to know it as soon as you ask. This work was being made after a photograph of a piece of destroyed kitchen. Someone broke out his kitchen, dumped it on the, on the steps, and this delivered this sculpturally interesting form. He took a picture and delivered that picture to his uh, craftsman with whom he worked like for a, a few years and said, make this. And then the, the craftsman had to decide how big it was, how it looked like, how the back of it looked like, what kind of material. So the thing was mostly, let's say, the most of the decisions were made by uh, the craftsman. But the most important thing is that he uses an object, which is a kitchen, and a kitchen is something that is one of the most exemplary products of contemporary uh, industrial production because it mediates between standardization and customization. Your, every kitchen is, is uh, uh, composed of a series of uh, things like uh, the fire and other stuff which are massively and standardized, are massively produced and standardized. But nevertheless, whenever you buy a kitchen, you get the promise and the belief that your kitchen is unique that it's being fitted into your house. And I think to go back, obviously I made a contextual talk, to go back to IKEA, I think IKEA is one of the firms which is the best in making customers believe worldwide that their kitchen is unique, while nevertheless it's a mass-produced object. And this is a, a, what I like to get at, is that you have different modes of relating to those objects which are there and which are part of the industrial production. And this is Scanlon who... Uh, made a manual how you can make a coffin out of an IKEA cupboard. The thing is that what, what I like about the sculpture by the Doppler is that you, and you are confronted with an opaque object that does not necessarily invite the customer or the consumer or the uh, visitor of the exhibition to do something, but you arrive at an object which, let's say, interiorizes this whole logic and delegates it, uh, thinks it through through form. And this is something I'm, I'm actually one of my own concerns. I think there, there's a lot of artistic practice going on today, which somehow not literally relates to the modes of production, but pushes a series of questions through form again, through material objects. I hope I'm being clear somehow. But here you're confronting an object if you start to explain about it. And you, you have a, a, a very opaque and double-sided object. It's an, it's an interesting sculptural object, but with a big, like a large story behind it, but not up on its sleeve like this one. Which means that it takes back a series of questions back into this formal labor, which is specific uh, to art. And one of the things that I think is incredibly interesting about this uh, young artist is that he does not make only these kind of mute 
uh, opaque objects, but simultaneously handmade, very uh, almost uh, uh, clumsy things like this work. This was the show he made in Lisbon this year, where suddenly you're faced when you visit the exhibition with a series of works which, as you confront them as material objects, speak of different modes of production, not literally, not immediately, but nevertheless show a series of strategies which you can apply as an artist. And the artist himself, and this is when I'm going to end, finds it's necessary not to think in either-or positions in terms of production. I think my whole interest in the studio as well is that there is no either-or uh, position towards this space of production, is that you can relate to it, and I think a lot of artists sometimes sketch in the studio, then they go to an uh, uh, industrial fabricator, uh, maybe they have someone invited one of their friends and they make something together, they might make a movie. There are different modes of production continuously shifting and intermingling that it's not um, necessary, let alone uh, very interesting to make these absolute declarations about the status of a space like that of the studio. These are other works, and I'd just like to end with a beautiful book with incredible title by Jörg Immendorf, Das Tun, was zu tun ist, one has to do what one has to do, and whatever means or spaces are necessary for it. Okay, thank you. First of all, thank you for uh, wonderful examples in um, showing how artists work very differently today. And um, we could hear that the traditional studio somehow has uh, in some ways become less important or at least not the only place where production takes place. Well, I think that this, what we will do now, this uh, conversation with uh, Maria Hedlund and uh, Karl Hamoud, uh, will be some kind of counterpart uh, to this uh, and also uh, a contribution to this, maybe also simulating studio visits uh, in this sense. And uh, so regardless how uh, artists uh, work today, what I found out preparing this exhibition is that uh, Many artists, even if they don't have a studio, they do relate to the studio as, as a notion, as a fact, even if they work in, in very different ways. And so for this exhibition, I asked the artists to write something about their studio. I, of course, did uh, several studio visits and could make my own ideas about uh, their working space and, and their process. But I found it interesting also to ask the artists directly to write something about their studio. And I got very different texts or answers to this. And uh, before uh, talking to Maria and Karl, uh, I want to share some of these, uh, these quotes, these texts that I got from the artists to again show how differently people uh, or artists think about their studio. Uh, we started out a bit late, so I will do this a bit shorter than planned uh, so that we can uh, move on to the conversation. First, there is an image that is uh, taken in, in uh, Jens Fenges' studio, just next door. Uh, and he said, I don't go to work when I go to my studio. I have a large adjustable easel, but most often I work with paintings uh, hanging on the wall or on the floor. My studio is always a mess. This is Joachim Nordström in his uh, studio. Normally, nobody is allowed into the studio. It would feel as if the audience would be allowed to look behind the magician's back and see all his tricks. I always cover over the drawings at night. They seem more sensitive and exposing than the collages and models. 
Without the drawing process, nothing else would exist. My work is influenced by what I see outside my studio window. It's about the staging around me, what I know and what I can use. Those houses outside, I have known them since childhood. This is uh, Karin Mama Andersson's studio. To me, it is as important to have a bed in my studio as it is to have water there. I sleep during the day. I would never have a studio without a bed. I just couldn't imagine it. It has to feel like a second home, but the studio also has an immense integrity connected to it, a sense of fragility. This is Uta Bart's studio in Los Angeles. My home and my studio are much the same thing as a photograph mostly in my house. The first thing people say when they enter my home is, you have no art on your walls. I don't because I need the white walls to think, to have a clean slate. My studio has walls for editing. I tape the images I'm interested in onto white cards and pin them into groupings onto the walls. Large growing grids of images. I live with them, stare at them when talking on the phone, while thinking through the project at hand when doing nothing at all. They give me ideas about what move to make next. I need to be surrounded by images in the studio and I need empty walls in my house. Annika von Auswolf here, I don't have uh, a photograph, uh, this is uh, a picture of one of her works. Every time in my life that I've had a room called my studio, I have seen to it that I spend as little time as possible in it. I have no idea why that is. The term studio is so loaded to me that I'm thinking of introducing a new word for my workspace in order to trick myself into spending time there. I imagine that I will build a study, and included in this idea are many shelves with books, reference material, an incredible comfortable armchair, some of those oriental rugs that I collect, and the possibility of smoking a cigar whenever it pleases me. By the way, the armchair is just there as a status symbol. I'm thinking a matson or an alto, since I in reality always work on my haunches with my sketches on the floor. This is the studio of Ohad Mirumi in New York. My major ambition is to transform the exhibition space into something like a studio, to bring its sense of play, potential and incompletion to the gallery. The studio is very important to me. It is the place of rehearsal and making. In general, what I'm looking for is a sense of the world as a place that is still in the making, hence the studio is the best model and vice versa. This is Mark Mander's studio. In my studio, I create a lot of problems that I then have to solve. Only great problems, though, and no time is lost in my studio. I keep unfinished sculptures around for years because they generate new ideas. I'm addicted to creating new things, so my biggest tool is desire. Everything has to look as if it's just been made. I want to create one great super moment. Again, this is a work by Anton Henning. I don't have a picture of his studio. My studio is home to my ideas that embrace humor, love, irony, antiphrase and antipode. It gives me a sense of orientation and makes me feel lost at the same time. It's a place charged with unpredictability. It is therefore also a place for, of erotic intensity. Two more. Mats Lederstam uh, here in Stockholm. The way the studio is organized certainly reflects my artistic practice, but it's not the place of my art. What is produced here are desires and projections that revolve around another place, the exhibition space. Johan Turfjell, this is the piece uh, installed here in this exhibition. 
My studio needs have increased successively over time. When I worked on Reach Out and Touch Faith seven years ago, I didn't even have a studio. I built the work at home in my apartment. Now it's come so far that I feel like I have to be in my studio to even be able to think properly about my work. I think it has to do with the fact that the distinction between work and leisure time has become more important since I started a family. So you see, artists think uh, very differently about their studio and um, that I found very interesting. That's why I wanted to, to focus on, on the studio in, in my part of this exhibition. And now coming to our two artists that are here tonight. Uh, I want to start with you, Carl. This is, um, I have several images from your studio. This is one of them. I wanted to start to ask you, first of all, how long have you been in the studio? I've been here for, um, I think it's uh, almost three years now, or two and a half years. And uh, what was important for you when you were looking for this for a studio? I think the most important thing was, was to have a space where that was divided somehow, so I could... Um, I wanted different rooms. <clears throat> I have two different rooms in my studio. One room is, is where I do um, work that doesn't um, make me filthy. Uh, I draw and I, I do computer work. Uh, and then another room where I build things and uh, paint with oil paint. And, and I have uh, some other tables that I do things which create a mess. <laughs> I will, I will see. Yeah. I think we have some more images. This is, I think, close to your computer. Oh, yes. It's uh, computers on the right side of the... Um, yes, I, I, um, I like to fill up the walls with, uh, with this pictures. This is where you draw. Yeah, this is on the opposite side of, of the... On this side is my computer and this is the opposite side and in there is the kitchen. Yeah, I like to fill, fill up the space where, where close to where I'm working, like besides my desk on the right, uh, left side, uh, I have a lot of pictures that are, but only pictures that I want to use at the moment. So um, I never, I have some like postcards and things that, are, that I never, that I leave there, but, but mostly it's just the, the pictures that interest me at the moment. Uh, they're, sort of ha they're sort of there to um, you say, mogna. Uh, <laughs> to mature. Yeah, exactly. So that I can decide if I want to work with it or not. But do these uh, workstations do they help you through the day, so to speak? Is it um, do you do you create your um, working day around these workstations? Yes, I do. Um, <clears throat> this room is I like it because it's uh, it's the same room where the entrance is, which is over here. So it's the first room that I come into when I when I enter, and then I just go to the kitchen and change my clothes into to the first pair of working clothes uh, for the first part of the day, which is um, just a shirt and a pair of pants that I use when I sit here. And then I work with uh, in this room up until lunchtime uh, when I eat something, and then I change into my painting clothes and go into the next room, and then I start doing messier things. What about so these clothes? How did you choose them? Is this a practical thing? or It's, it's partly practical, but it's also... I liked it because it's there's a small reference to um, uh, to other artists that I've seen using these clothes and the the, the clothes that I use when I'm when I'm working with my paintings is this, this small reference to Jackson Pollock I use like 
uh, working uh, pants and uh, with has these knee uh, protection pads mm-hmm. and, uh, and 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 just like a white t-shirt. And it feels like it gets me in the in the mood to to not be afraid to make a mess. Um, yeah, it's just like a thing that, that creates an atm- atmosphere that I that feels a bit more inspiring than than it would have if I if I didn't have that reference. And for the drawing, the drawing clothes. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's. A, I think it, it was originally when I saw like the first video of, of William Kentridge working in his studio. Like he, used wear, he just wears like a white shirt and this old man's pants. <laughs> uh, so I, I like the idea of also having having this set of clothes that that won't get dirty, that will keep clean, like a white shirt, which also uh, sort of. Um, sort of like a reflection of the white paper that I'm working mm-hmm. on or, or like the yeah it's just like a way it feels feels a bit more cleaner and I and I work in a much smaller scale when I'm wearing these clothes how long have you been doing this when did uh, you decide to I think it, have I think these it was references? when I when I when I moved into this studio it, it it felt like it was like a new start I had the opportunity because it's quite large this studio it's uh, or at least for me it's 65 uh, square meters and and this studio I had before was half that size and and so when I moved in here I spent like two months renovating the the space and then I really had a chance to start like from from where I wanted to I, I could organize the studio in a way that that I that would make me like comfortable and that would be inspiring and does it differ a lot from the studio you had before yes the, the studio I had before was like a rat hole <laughs> it was very okay. small and it was uh, I I had very small windows it felt I used to call it a bunker but this this is a larger space and it's still below uh, ground level, but but not as far below. <laughs> so no. my my windows are a bit larger. <laughs> but you have closed <laughs> so off your windows, if I don't. Yes, <coughs> that's because there's um, it's located in a area where people. people yeah, you live. can see the the closed windows. You don't yeah. really look out. Yeah, because there's a lot of people passing, and it felt like I was giving a show if <laughs> when people were were looking in. So I had, to, but it's still I can I can still get the light if I. Um, remove the um, blinds exactly mm. so this is your dream studio you would say it's not quite there yet I, I want to make some changes but basically I really really like it so it's it's uh, it's basically home I show some more pictures this is where you work with models right yes this is where I do cutting and um, things like that and this is on the opposite side where I, I built this um, thing to to um, because I have an easel, but it won't take paintings that are uh, that are that large. So I built this uh, thing on the wall where I can hang the paintings when I'm working on them. But the, it's kind of low, so I have to stand on my knees when I'm working on the lower part. <laughs> so that's why I have the knee pads. Um. I think if I look at the text that you sent me, you, you wrote something, I never leave the studio once I have entered it or stepped into it. And you're there many, many hours during the day. You start yes. early, you leave late. I get there, I think, maybe just after seven or something. And then I leave maybe around eight o'clock. Or it depends if I have a de- deadline, I might be there until 10 o'clock or something. Yes, but I never leave. I have a. I do my shopping on the way home uh, just before the, the store closes at 10. <laughs> so I usually manage to do, do, do shop some food for next day and then... Um, 
Yeah, and I, I don't know. It's, it's like I don't want to be aware of um, of myself because if I would go outside and, and, and get lunch at a place, I, I would have to change my clothes and then I have, would have to go outside and, and communicate with people, like to <laughs> place an order. But if I'm in my studio, if I never leave it, I, I really don't have to sort of think about myself as a person. It's like only... Only my eyes seeing seeing things and moving things around, and I don't know. It's it has become more and more important for me. And if someone calls during the day, like when I call, <laughs> write well, I, you an I do email. answer the phone. Um, I know uh, <laughs> you're well behaved. <laughs> I have um, I usually have uh, earphones and and listen to music. And, and the wonderful thing about when I got the iPhone, I realized that the the music tunes down just before the, the, the signal comes so I, I won't like jump uh, or be surprised you're prepared for the outer world it's like I have a small I have few seconds of just leaving wherever I am and <laughs> entering the real world <laughs> But if you don't go out, I mean, of course, you go out when you go home and uh, you spend time at home as well, I hope, not only sleeping. Uh, where do you get uh, most of your inspiration from? Is it through books and, and um, other art? Or since you don't want to have this encounter um, I mean, while I, you produce? I, do, I have, like, in the, in the periods between exhibitions or between different projects, I, I do try to go out and see things and I do travel to, to other countries to, to see exhibitions and, and other works of art but I guess I do a lot of browsing on the internet as well and I, um, I have a lot of books, like art books um, and I do a lot of searches for just random images that would inspire me maybe just to find small parts of an image that would be interesting that I could use yeah, do, you feel, do you work when you're not in the studio? I mean, do you sketch at home or when you're traveling, or is it just? I, I make notes. I, just, yeah. I, um, I usually keep like a small notebook and make just like notes, which usually uh, it's a, it's kind of a cliche, but I have a small no notebook next to my bed because a lot of ideas come, come just before you fall asleep, and which in in turn then in the morning they're not as good as they were just before you you fall asleep, but. but There might be something there that I could, <laughs> that I could <laughs> that, use. That you can use. Yeah. Well, actually, uh, earlier today I saw a film where you could see the Swedish artist Don Bolgers, who is um, moving into a new studio and he's placing the furniture and uh, talking about, uh, you know, how how should he create this studio and uh, thinking about how it could be either in practical ways or in rational or in irrational ways uh, and uh, I think in the end he, he came up to that it should be as uncomfortable as possible then it's the best studio but then he also finished up saying that the best studio for him still is the car because he works a lot also in the car he's driving around a lot and uh, looking at, at things and often has a lot of things accumulated in the car Uh, and sometimes even sits in the front of the car and builds his little objects, which I found was quite uh, interesting. So uh, you have your little notebook. Maybe that is your second studio somehow, or yeah, just, alternative just, studio. Yeah, but I wouldn't I, because I've thought of that. If I would ever move abroad for a short peri period, I'm I'm not very um, portable. My studio is not very portable. I, th no. I still need a lot of equipment because I do kind of different things um, I do a lot of things which never becomes anything just like 
you know, make small sketches to a new smart shelf that mm -hmm. I want or something, or just uh, try out the different things. There, there's a, a small paper, like a small button in the uh, in the flat file uh, mm -hmm. inside there, um, which I just made. I just wanted to try the yeah the small paper button how it would look on on something else, but the button was originally to um, the small model that you saw. Mm -hmm. um, to that one, it's a, it's a polygraph, a, a lie detector that I, that I was working on. This is way before it was finished. And I wanted an on-off on switch on the side, so I had to try it on, on something just to see how it works. So I do a lot of uh, like sketches that I build, um, and I build some, like models of things just just to try mm. ideas and, and things like that. So I'm, I'm not, I'm not very like portable. I, I wouldn't be able to work for a long time um, if I would just have my notebook or a sketchbook or mm. something like that. Maybe just to, to um, before moving over to Maria, this is quite an interesting picture because it sh also shows something that uh, you often do with your the material that you <laughs> that you buy. Yeah, I, I cover uh, where I, I remove all the. Um, the logos and, the logos and labels. The, yeah, uh, because I can't stand to see them uh, because they're usually very like distracting and just very uninspiring. Um, sort of reminds me of the world outside, <laughs> or the bad parts of the world outside the studio, like all these. Just the idea of how many ads you see on the way home. Mm. I mean, I have I have a subway ride which is three or four stations, it's just like five minutes or something, but you see, I don't know, I see maybe a dozen ads mm. on the way home and it's, and it's just, it's kind of upsets me because they're, they're just... Um, they interfere somehow? Yeah, they're, they don't have anything that would inspire me in any way, <laughs> I would say. So I want, I want to create an atmosphere in the studio that, where I have decided uh, exactly what uh, images I see, which, mm. which Im what images that surrounds me, and I also like it because I think it looks it looks very good. <laughs> it does. It's an interesting <laughs> image <laughs> for sure. Uh, I think here I would like to move over to you, Maria. Uh, the chaos, <laughs> the chaos, but it's uh, also a l very wonderful chaos. Um, I think the first sentence that you wrote to me or sent to me um, is very um, characteristic for how you work. And it was, I don't have a studio, I don't have a home, but I have a place in which I live and work. And this is this place where you live and work. Mm -hmm. Tell us about it. And you hear me? So. Yes. Uh, since the beginning of the 90s and um, a lot of works has been produced in it but um, at one point it was in uh, 99 I got a scholarship uh, to Berlin so I moved away for one year and during that time I also broke up a very long time relation with the person and then I couldn't return to Stockholm somehow, so I continued to live in Berlin one more year. And then after that, in 2001, in the autumn, I went to New York for another scholarship for four months. So I started to travel a lot. I continued to, to travel for some years. I didn't have a kind of steady place where I lived. Yeah, that influenced my work a lot. 
it was like the work I was doing, it was following me all the time and I was not dependent on one special place to work. And um, yeah, it was very relieving, I felt very free. And uh, during this Berlin period, I, I had a lot of plans uh, that I didn't have time to take care of. And so they yeah, decayed. And the last day I lived in Berlin, I took some portraits of them. And it became a work called Deserted, and it's a portrait of 16 plants that are totally worn out. And then eventually returning to Stockholm and try to have a kind of steady place where to live and to work. It was around 2008-2007. All of a sudden a lot of friends, persons, starting to give me plans. And um, <laughs> uh, uh, they asked me, oh, do you want to take care of this? We don't have a place for them. And oh, of course. I could do that. It was kind of a guilt process <laughs> also <laughs> to make up for the bad things I caused the plants in Berlin. So <laughs> now it's uh, yeah, starting to become like a jungle in my small apartment. It's 35 square meters and uh, yeah, it's a lot of things going on. And uh, it's a part of a project I'm working on right now. It affects my living situation also now. They are slowly starting to push me out from the apartment, so I need to yeah, somehow change my living situation. I don't know how yet, but <laughs> I'm, in a, I'm in the process. <laughs> <laughs> sounds, sounds wonderful, yeah. so many plants. But uh, I wonder, since you work and live here with these plants, uh -huh. how do you divide your, your time? Uh, do you, um, when you're in, in your place? I, I don't uh, divide it. I somehow live in my work. And uh, also I'm photographing at home. I work uh, quite a lot with photography. And I also collect... Uh, I have done that for some years, uh, objects that relates to nature somehow. 20 years ago I bought, for example, an insect collection containing on 24 boxes and I bought it from an ad at the Yellow Pages. And I just got so fascinated that you actually can buy an insect collection through an ad. And I bought some other things as well. And um, I've been using these objects in my work and it gives me inspiration and I have other things I collected as well. So when you when you are there in yeah. your place it's not that you sometimes say okay now I'm working and now I'm more at home. Yeah, I guess it's difficult on 35 square meters. Yeah but uh, when I for example sit in bed and watch TV I don't work for example. <laughs> <laughs> But um, I know that similarly, a bit Excuse like uh, Annika von Hauswolf, who couldn't even uh, call her studio the studio, you also had these, uh, at times, these uh, anxieties. Yeah, but it was kind of more personal issues that somehow mm. pushed me out from the studios. It was, um, I somehow had to learn uh, how to work without a studio. It was a way of surviving <laughs> as an artist. Because in this way you can also keep the costs down, yeah, I guess? Yeah, I can. You're and more also, uh, by the time these years where I was traveling a lot, mm -hmm. um, it was really important to keep the costs down, of course. 
But you also told me that you're somehow in in a kind of turning yeah, point. Yeah, as uh, this uh, work that I've been working with uh, last years, it's growing, and I somehow would like to need a studio for at least half a year or something to get a kind of overview uh, of the whole work. So that's something I might do, and uh, also I'm. Uh, I'm buying a part uh, in a photo studio as I work a lot with black and white photography. I need to have the ability to develop the negatives myself. And I recently also bought this eight by ten inch camera uh, that I use photographing at home. So I need to arrange things a lot while working. And um, what do you want the studio to be like? Yeah, yeah, empty, <laughs> so I can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> yes. So an ad for uh, an empty space, if someone knows. Just maybe to both of you, are, are you curious about other artist studios? I mean, is that something that... Uh, do you want to go and visit your fellow artists in their studios? Oh, of course. It's really curious to see how other persons work. It's... It's a lot of fun. Otherwise, it gets a bit uh, lonely, doesn't it? I mean, especially since I know you're you're out a bit more during the day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes, I am. Then Carl. Actually, I, I I don't get lonely. Uh, I mean, I really I really like it this way. And I and I especially now I just I have, I've just finished an exhibition, um, working uh, the work with an exhibition, and I think I worked. Uh, harder than ever before. I, maybe I had like one hour at mm. home before I fell asleep. But the sick thing is that I re I liked it. I really because I had a lot of fun in the studio. But of course I miss I miss like I miss friends and I and it's kind of frustrating. I had I had a deadline so I really couldn't move outside the studio because I work kind of slow. Um, so I missed a lot of exhibitions that that I would have loved to see. If I'm curious about other artists studios i think i'm more curious about their work than mm -hmm. than the studios like it would be really nice to to see what the work looks like before it's before it leaves the studio <clears throat> before it's finished um do you feel when now that you talk about it do you feel differently about your works when they're in the studio and uh when they're there in, in an exhibition yeah i think the part i think it's um the moment when the the paintings or objects are in place. I feel kind of finished with the, the works. I never want to see them again. <laughs> I mean, it's maybe like in in five years from now, it, it's I can enjoy seeing my own paintings or or drawings. Or when it's finished, it's like I'm only interested in them during the process, and then mm. then I don't. Yeah, hopefully I I won't have to see them in a while. I know that we've. We're a bit uh, over time here, but uh, I still want to ask a few more things. And do you think that I know that uh, some artists feel that their studios or their studio is more uh, personal and more private than th their home? Is that something you can uh, agree to, or does it, for instance, does the studio describe you more as a person than your home? <laughs> In your case, it's quite mixed. But I mean, uh, again, maybe Carl. Uh, Yes, yeah, absolutely. Uh, actually, a lot of the times when you came to visit, I had I had some notes that I turned <laughs> around because they're not because they would like reveal something about me that that I don't want to reveal or something like that. It's not personal. It's just the way that they're written, like the or the idea that 
that I've made a note of. I I don't want to share it yet. So for a, for a short period, I actually I have I had a few I had quite a few visits to my studio, and I started turning all my notes around. <clears throat> Even at times, I put notes on paintings, like on an area that I want to modify in some way, or I had I have an idea of removing something, so I put a note of it right on the spot, and then I started started turning them all around. And it became um, a way of, of working because when the person, when the meeting was over and the person left and I uh, reversed the, the notes again, some, some of the notes I didn't agree with anymore. I just found out that I know I don't have to make that change. So it became a way of um, making the, even the notes mature a bit by turning them around, not seeing what I've written. But Maria, since you live and work in the same mm -hmm. space, maybe your space is even more private than a home or than a studio so yes when i met private. when we met we <laughs> actually met outdoors mm. or mm. in in a cafe mm. so do you let people into your mm, very close home? friends because i like to cook <laughs> and uh, if it's uh, but not yeah. work related maybe uh, work related yes if it's someone that knows my work and is interested in it then i can bring them home. I want to see if someone wants to ask something either to Carl or Maria or to Walter. Maybe now Walter's lecture is a bit uh, far uh, away. Maybe I can ask Walter a question. Uh, do you do you think that there is um, a problem um, in the fact that that there is this interest in in the studio and um, I mean you said that there are several exhibitions at the moment or that have been uh, going on about the studio uh, that you focus on, on on the artist and the things around and not only on the art um, do you think that that could be problematic somehow no i don't quite the contrary actually um i think i find it far more problematic the kind of absolutism that was used in discourse and i think it's profoundly human to be interested in private space or, or working methods without necessarily trying to distill critique or, or theory out of it. And I don't necessarily believe that you can only grasp an artist if you see the workspace. But I think they all add up and in some case I find it necessary to go and see an artist and sometimes it helps, sometimes it doesn't. Mm -hmm. And um, I think no, I think it's often clarifying also why I showed, for example, the Soluit uh, project. I think out of the negative it shows how how this interest also can turn completely berserk and that you get something which is highly problematic. While in another case, it might, I think, seeing the pictures now, I find it utterly interesting and intriguing and, and, and fi uh, uh, something really worthwhile. I think it depends uh, on the... Um, the view and to what extent belief is involved. You can both also lie, which I think, which I would find equally interesting. You can say you do stuff while you don't. And I think it's also the conceptual legacy that you can do that. So there's no truth involved in the studio, but quite some material facts which you can possibly maybe use. And I like the idea that it's such a constructed entity evermore and I think to, to, to grasp the constructedness of it we have to take it serious also the, the very romantic uh, ones are the very uh, enlightened ones but I think we need both to understand how art is being produced nowadays
maybe as a last thing, last question to to you, um, to there are several studios that uh, have uh, been preserved after um, artists have passed away. And of course, this is nothing that we want to think of in, in your case. But still, what if, I mean, <laughs> this is coming over really badly now. But uh, what do you feel about this? The fact that maybe your places will be preserved exactly as they are today, as you left them. I don't know. Why not? <laughs> If someone would be interested, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and you, Carl? If I'm dead, it won't matter. But uh, uh, of course. but I would prefer uh, uh, not that it won't mm. be preserved. If I mm. if I could have that choice, I would prefer not to. Thank you for these last <laughs> <laughs> words for tonight. If no one else uh, wants to ask something more, uh, you've been very patient. Sorry for. Um, going so much over the time tonight. Um, I think if you want to peep into the, the exhibition, it's open just a few more minutes. So thank you for coming. Mm -hmm.